But the next time you're sitting in a meeting that you're neither valuing or contributing to, just say inside your head, SBH. And that stands for shouldn't be here. Hey, it's David. And you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey, welcome to the show. Today, I am delighted to introduce you to a guest who is going to help me as well as you, guaranteed. She is a regular feature in top global media outlets, including Forbes and Fast Company. Her name is Juliette Funt, and she's a renowned keynote speaker, and this is my favorite part, tough love advisor to the Fortune 500. <laughs> and that's where we're getting the tough love today. So you're going to get some, I'm going to get some, it's going to be awesome. But uh, Juliet is the founder and C- CEO of the boutique efficiency firm, the Juliet Fund Group. She's an evangelist for freeing the potential of companies by unburdening their talent from busy work. Does that sound good? It does to me. So you'll find out she's warm, she's relatable, got actionable content. We love that practical, actionable content here on Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. And uh, she's worked for Spotify, National Geographic, Anthem, Vans, Abbott, Costco, Pepsi, Nike, Wells Fargo, Sephora, Cisco, ESPN. I'm trying to do it in one breath. (laughs) I did the whole thing. (laughs) And her new book that we're going to be talking about today is A Minute to Think, Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Busyness, and Do Your Best Work. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Juliet, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I can tell it's going to be fun already. (laughs) Well, Juliet, you had mentioned that you've listened to some episodes, so you know what's coming next. I have to ask you, what is your earliest memory of yourself as a leader? I did anticipate the question, and I have to say that after mulling it over, the truth is that I don't think of myself as a leader. I think of myself as a creative who has employees, and I've I've never been able to step into that role other than the functional necessity of my job, which is that I have people who work for me. We drive a culture together. We have a mission in the world. But it's something about that that moniker doesn't really sit with me. I've never really stepped all the way into it. And it was interesting just having to reflect on that because of your question, because I think I just live it, but don't think of myself that way. Interesting, because the things that you just mentioned when you say a driver of culture, for instance, uh, or creator of change, and you're a creative and you're an influencer are all aspects that I would consider to be amazing aspects of leadership. So let's change the language then a little bit. And when did you first see yourself as a creator of culture? How about that? And it doesn't have I to think- be work related. Yeah, but it it actually was for me, the first time that I felt the responsibility of creating culture was when I realized that there were a few employees that had begun to accumulate and all I was doing was giving them things to do. Mm. And that here I was, someone who paid people their salary and gave them requests and asked how they were every day and was simply assigning it was like I had hired a bunch of freelancers and made them full-time, but I hadn't yet made the transition to what comes after that. And that was early in the company. That was probably around nine years ago where I realized that there was a a need to be emotionally stepping ahead of them, to decide on the emotional tone of the day, to decide on the mission and vision of a day. And I definitely think that that started in the first, I would say, two years of the formal company. Wow. So it, it started from you seeing the lack and what was happening as you had the individuals and the tasks, but not the glue, not the the us. 
And it was not it was not the most flattering moment of realization because I had evolved out of being someone who hired vendors and then needed more vendors and then eventually had employees and then eventually started building a company. And I didn't gracefully realize that there was a different assignment for me in having employees versus having vendors. It was a completely different assignment, but I hadn't really grasped it. Well, and kudos to you for the self-awareness and coming to that realization because some people never do, right? Mm. Yeah. Thank oh, you. I love I love the way that you talk about culture, the way that you think about it, and it pervades your book, A Minute to Think, that we're talking about today. And and one of the reasons that I thought this would be such a good discussion for our listeners is because there's a lot of synergy and not overlap necessarily, but places where with our latest book, Courageous Cultures, How to Build Teams of Micro Innovators, Problem Solvers, Customer Advocates, you you really draw out some things that we might have touched on in a in a sentence, but then you give us a lot mm. of the how and help explore it. And I think it's going to be powerful for, for leaders to get these tools. So let's dive into your book, A Minute to Think, Thank Reclaim you. Creativity, Conquer Busyness, and Do Your Best Work. What are we talking about here when you say a minute to think? Because I always, I'm an introvert. I always need another minute to think. What are you talking about when you say a minute to think? We're talking about the greatest missing element in modern work, the permission to have time that doesn't have an assignment. That any open time, time to think, to breathe, to strategize, and it used to exist. It used to be laced in between the activities of our day, but it's just it's just vanished. And the foundational metaphor that we use, I think that's the most powerful, is if you imagine building a fire, there would be certain materials you'd need. You'd get paper, fire starter, logs, maybe pine needles. But if you failed to add one critical ingredient, nothing that you ever, ever threw a match at would ignite. And that critical ingredient is space. It's the just the open, beautiful, oxygenating room in the day that we have trained ourselves to live without. And we replace it with caffeine and digital stimulants and sugar and will. And uh, I don't think that there's ever been a time in professional history where we are at as frightening a period of questioning whether this can still continue because we've muscled through the entire pandemic without it, without much of it at all, Zoomified from morning to night. And now is the moment where we have an opportunity to decide. We're going to go back to work. We're going to have this spectacular opportunity for redesign right this minute in the cultures of every company in the world. Let's insert some space. This is the this is the time. It is such an opportunity for us to make those changes and not have to do whatever we were doing before or what we've been doing since. And you know, when I read the metaphor of the fire in your book, I have, I loved it because we're very different in that regard. So you talk about in the book how you grew up in Manhattan, an apartment dweller, and the only time you might have to start a fire meant things went terribly, terribly wrong. It's exactly that never happened. Whereas I grew up camping and learning how to start fires and I love the outdoors and all of that. And I and I just had written again myself separately from from your reading about that need for space and oxygen in a fire mm. and so i would encourage you if you're listening and you've never started a fire uh in a fire but i'm not talking about like with a starter log that's soaked with uh you know with an accelerator <laughs> i'm talking about like with some pine needles and some twigs and try it you know see what juliet's talking about here because it's easy to smother it and it's a good metaphor to have in mind for everything that's going to come next 
But so is the starter log. And I've never talked about this before ever once, but the starter log is sort of what we're attempting to do in business right now. We're, we're pouring all of this toxic, fake accelerant on something and throwing a match at it. Caffeine, sugar, nicotine, digital stimulants, pressure, peer pressure, hoping that we can just keep running forward. And it's, it's not a natural way to be oxygenated. And when you bring that little spark, when you get up every morning, if you even still remember how this feeling feels, if you go, I have something valuable inside of me and I'm going to bring it to work and let it ignite. You, you don't want a starter log. You want a beautiful oxygenated fireplace filled with the right materials and the right space for you to thrive. Oh, I love that. I hadn't thought about that particular, but the shortcut, shortcuts always come at a, at a price. And whether mm-hmm. it's the price of the toxic chemicals, the price of what we do to ourselves and trying to, to you know, continue to stimulate our production. And that's why, that's why Conquer Busyness is in the middle of the subtitle, because if we work in companies where we, and this is a leadership audience, where we're mindlessly subjecting our people to emails and meetings and decks and reports and paperwork that have little tactical value. We're just smothering that spark every day. And we're, we're not getting the most out of what we pay people for. It's a completely illogical system. And I, I so empathize with what you're saying because I can smother that spark in myself. And I have no one to blame mm. but myself. I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a business owner, and I can do it and I do do it to myself. And I feel like I'm in a constant... Um, tug of war is not the right word, but it's a dynamic equal. I'm constantly having to adjust and find and, and work to maintain that. So, and you've got so many different ways for us to think about this, but let's dive into the problem. And one of the ways that you, and again, talking about culture, one of the ways that you talk about culture on the problem side of this equation is the culture of insatiability. Mm. And that might've been my favorite phrase and I know it's a negative phrase, but boy, I love those words, the culture of insatiability. Yeah. What, it's what is we live that? In. It's, it's the thing that is has gotten into your bloodstream that's now been internalized. That's why you do it to yourself. It's everywhere we look. We, By the way, there is no they doing it to us anymore. Often now we've got, we just internalized it. The culture of insatiability is a value system of more that rewards quantity in all areas. It rewards quantity of tasks. It records quantity of recording. It records quantity of research and information. And we start drifting away from, are these things that we're adding creating value or are they just mass? And as we drift farther and farther away, we end up with less time in the day for meaning. And I bet there's not a single person listening who hasn't had a day in the last year where they kind of 6.15, 6.15, workday's almost over, should have been over at five, but it's really going to be over at seven. And they kind of stare off for a minute and think, I've been at this desk since eight o'clock. What did I do today? Did I do anything that fired me up or made me passionate or made me smile? And, and, and sadly, and very concerningly, the answer can be no, day after day after day. It is true. And with that constant desire for more one of the when I have these conversations with with business leaders of a certain type there are some who who really already get it have seeing it for themselves and who still struggle with this and then there are others who are just you know that driven you know never say stop kind of thing mm-hmm. and one of the frequent concerns as we go into this topic about creating white space and and room and pause and, and so on is 
the need for hustle. Well, listen, you know, it, it's all well and good that we talk about this, but the business next door isn't taking a break for white space. So if I'm going to stay competitive, I hear you, Juliet. I want to be human centered. I want to create a work environment that actually works for human minds and bodies and souls. But how do I do that when I'm the person next to me, they're going to out hustle and I'm right. in a competitive environment. So first of all, you slipped in the word white space. So that's the formal definition of this room that we've been talking about. And I should say that the name came from looking at paper calendars in the old days of my executive coaching when we were realized there's a white space here. There's a place where there is nothing. And that inkless area became sort of a lead indicator of when a day was going to be really fruitful, how much oxygenating space was on that calendar. Now, the, the mistake that you're making, though, if I may, is that you, you've fallen into the same misperception that many people do in the beginning, which is that you're only defining white space in its recuperative use. Yes, sometimes white space is to recuperate. It is to take your exhausted brain and body and just for a little while and just uh, like stare at a wall and be completely refueled by nothingness, by giving your cognitive load a pause. But it's only one of four ways that space is used in a professional environment. The thing that adds to competitive advantage, the thing that can make you more confident peeking over the fence at that hustling competitor are, occurs in the other three uses of the pause. So we can take a pause to recuperate. We talked about that. We can take a pause to reflect. That's the second way. And this is what you see classic business leaders doing absolutely without thinking, Jeff Weiner at LinkedIn, scheduling nothing on his calendar, Phil Knight at Nike, who had a special chair in his living room only for daydreaming. This is the moment where you step back and look at what's my product line? What's my approach? Who am I as a leader? Where is my personality getting in the way? How did that meeting go? There's a million areas of potential reflection that occur in open time. The third use of the pause is to reduce. And this is where we're strategically using a pause to examine waste, to look at, is this the right meeting? Should I be sitting in here? Should I be sending this thread? Should I be writing this report? The pause before inflicting waste on ourselves and our employees is a very, very powerful use of the pause that has an efficiency correlation. In fact, when companies don't do this, we see in our client research $1 million of annual waste for every 50 people in stupid work, just unnecessary nonsense work. And to give you a visual of that, that's like if you took fifth, if you took 12 out of every 50 people and said to them, you guys can just go eat Doritos and play video games all day long. That's the level of contribution that 12 out of 50 are making with that math equation. So we must have that pause to reduce. And then the last is to construct. And this is where the gold is of stopping the machine to ideate, concoct, come up with a brainstorm, hatch a new product, invent. This is where you're actually making things with your mind in the pause. So when you say, how can I rest? My neighbor's not resting. That's because you've only used one out of the four. Perfect. So let's, let's use, let's go over those four again, encapsulate okay. those four. So we've got the first, which we talked about, recuperate, and that's recuperate. probably maybe the most intuitive for many people. And right now, very important, very, very, <laughs> very, very important. important. And and important in its own right, right? We don't want to minimize that just because we're moving past it, but it is. But important. also important, if I can just squeeze in, is everywhere in the world, leaders are giving their teams a wellness day right now because of pandemic. And that's very important and a good start. 
But that's like if you had a starving person and once a quarter you let them binge. It's not the, the pause to recuperate is a daily reprieve. We want it daily in the workflow that we're taking these little moments. And it's how our minds work, right? Yes, so, exactly. Absolutely. Okay, so we've got the recuperate. Right. And next? Reflect. Reflect. And so the taking the time to think about what's going on, how we're approaching, you said a thousand different ways we can reflect. Then there was eliminate. Reduce. Reduce. Okay. Reduce, which is eliminate. It's what we call having a reductive mindset where we're looking at waste through taking time to pause and examining the uh, things that we're doing and should be doing. All right. So we're going to recuperate. We're going to reduce. Reflect. We're going to reduce. And, and then... we're going to construct. This is making things with your mind in the pause. So I'll give you an example of this. There's a there's a security guard that I'm very fond of who works in a Fortune 200 company. It's in the book. His name is John. And he's a security guard. So that means he sits at surveillance monitors all day long. Now, the company that he works for is very proud of its innovative patents and strives for a lot of patent competition within their employees. And of all the people who work there, including the innovative department, it's actually John, true, a very creative thinker, but it's this man sitting in front of his surveillance monitors all day long that holds the record for inventing the most creative patents. And I would say, bias as I am, it's because his job is 95% unplanned time and 5% action. And that permission to have the mind go where it wants to go has taken him to spectacular places. The punchline is that he's been transferred into, into innovation twice out of security and both times quit that job and returned to security because the tasks that he was assigned got in the way of his creative process. And I, I Actually, love that punchline at the end. That's fantastic of actually being generative. Love it. So there's a couple applications and directions I want to go here. So as you're listening and thinking about this, hopefully you're already seeing the, the core value of what Juliet's talking about, uh, of the use, the strategic, intentional, planned use of white space in how you're approaching your days, how as you are leading your teams, how you're helping your teams navigate and create that for themselves, and then the different uses of it. So Juliet, as we're thinking about this, I'm curious, Somebody's listening and just right now going, okay, I get what you're saying, but you should see my calendar. Right. How do I actually start to create some of this white space? The training wheels tool is called the wedge. And you may remember it from the book. It's very simple. The wedge, if you imagine just a wedge with a point at the top, is a small portion of white space that's inserted in between two activities. And it just separates them and oxygenates them just a little bit. This can be between a question and a response, between a meeting and a meeting, between sitting down for the day and opening your inbox, these little wedges of open time. It'll be very manageable for your listeners to just give it a go. And I'm talking about tiny manageable sips five seconds, 10 seconds. I won't waste the time of our podcast together, but if we did take 10 seconds in complete silence, you'd finish it and you go, that was so long. I can't believe how long that felt because we never stopped moving. Oh, so it come on, Julia. No, come on. We're talking about white space, 10 seconds. We can do it. Let's do it. Okay. Right ready? Now. Who has the iPhone? Hold on one I'm, second. I'm just, let's do it visually. We're, we can see our, our fingers. Let's just use our fingers. Okay. Here we go.
and 10. All right. That felt I gave good. you five and five. Five and five. It's, if you set a timer, I, I don't always advocate for the timer solution. Some people are timer people, some people aren't, but you'd be surprised. You set a timer for 15 or 20 or 30 seconds. You'd be surprised the amount of recuperative break you can get in there. And there are other twin training wheels uh, tools as well that they can play with. So for instance, when you're in the shower in the morning, when you've finished your shower things to do list, instead of getting out, stay in the shower and do nothing for a couple of minutes. Allow the steam and the heat and the privacy to just be a place that you exhale. Then if you still have a commute, use that commute with no sensory stimulation. Turn off the podcast, dismantle your little passenger seat desk that you do stuff at at stoplights and just drive. Or tie white space to a cue, such as when the sun hits, this is one of my favorite ones, is when the sun hits your face to pause in that moment. And as you start just inserting these little sips, an intuitive part of you will begin to scream, I, don't I deserve to just take a minute? And that's the part that we're trying to access, just a minute, a minute to think or breathe or pause. So we're gonna reframe that white space. It is incredibly constructive in the four different ways that you shared with us. We're gonna start looking for the tiny sips Mm -hmm. If this doesn't come naturally, if you're you're challenged by it, find the tiny sips, those moments. I love the the cue that you're talking about, like finding a thing in your routine, your life that can be the thing when that you associate, mm. like the sun on your face or the sound of a bell or whatever it is for you. But to get a Pavlovian response to, I'm going to pause. Ah, mm. Okay. So as we're moving forward, thinking about creating white space, Oh, but if I can, other, if I, uh, before you move forward, there was another, you brought up kind of a yin and a yang, which is how do we start internally? But you also mentioned the calendar and how do I do it? If my, if I sit down and my, I look like I would just want a game of Tetris because everything is full. Yes, yes. So this is, we have to really talk about this too, because leaders drive the calendar and yet are victims of it at the same time. It's this pernicious cycle where they feel like they can't escape. So it's incredibly important to look at the meetings that you're sitting in and the meetings that you're calling with a kind of rigor that maybe you've never had before. It was important before the pandemic, but the Zoom fatigue and the level of acquiescence to 7 to 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. now has to be broken. We need to look at every meeting and say, who am I inviting just in case? Who am I inviting for a compliment? Who am I inviting? Because I didn't even think about it. I just throw them on there because I always throw them on there and really, really, really paring down. On the flip side, when you're sitting in your meetings, I'll give you my number one favorite meeting tool. It's so subtle, it doesn't even feel like a tool. But the next time you're sitting in a meeting that you're not, neither valuing or contributing to, just say inside your head, SBH. And that stands for shouldn't be here. And what you do is you say this to yourself over and over every single time you're unnecessarily bored in a meeting. Sometimes work is boring, but there are times when you know it's more than that. And what happens is it'll start making you more uncomfortable and more uncomfortable. And eventually it'll drive you to conversations with the people that are calling those meetings. So we, we just must throw in something about the meeting calendar if we're theoretically making space for space. Absolutely. And you know, I appreciate what you're talking about in terms of who we're inviting. Uh, here at Let's Grow Leaders, we have a kind of a twofold criteria we use. I'd be curious your perspective on this mm -hmm. in terms of who you're inviting. So first is 
we want to invite the smallest number of stakeholders to make the best decision. There's an optimal, you know, any meeting you could have anywhere from just yourself mm-hmm. all the way to everybody in the company. Right. right? Those are the limits, right? Somewhere right. in there is an optimal number of people for this particular discussion and decision. So the smallest number, that's the, the best decision. But then the second piece that, and this is a, a tall bar, but I think it's important is this should be the most productive use of time for anybody who's attending that meeting. Mm. And there are different ways to define productivity, get that. There may be subject matter expertise they're bringing there. You know, it may be uh, developmentally very good for them. Right. Um, or they may directly contribute to the best decision. There are different definitions. But if it's not the most productive use of someone's time, why would we want to take up their time with that? It's it, sometimes I do want to give a little bit of validation, especially in larger companies, for the validation of FaceTime that sometimes sitting next to Mrs. Big for one hour and doing kind of stupid, meaningless work, but being in proximity of certain leaders is actually a very important career choice. That's so we have valuable. to we have to just acknowledge that as well. Absolutely. But it, it was funny that in the spectrum you showed there, I don't know if I, I, I this I'll be playing semantics with you a little bit, but from yourself all the way up to the the main the whole company leaves out the possibility of you leaving the meeting. That there are so many times when you actually are the one who don't need who doesn't need to be there. And there are ways that teams can think. Everything in the book is about teams learning, shared language, shared permissions, and then walking the easy path together. It only becomes the easy path when we share it together. So the shared language around meetings that I believe in is you have to give people clear ways that they can opt in or opt out. So we believe in our company, you can opt in, means I'm going, means I'm going to either add value or get value. I'm not going to go means I have guiltless permission to speak my mind without fear or, or later paying a price for saying, I don't think I should be here. We could send a sub, which means I'm really busy, but Alyssa is free and I don't want to hold up the meeting. It'll be great for Alyssa. So she's going to go. Or my fourth favorite, and this is the one that's a little bit novel in the book is we allow people to be on call. And what this means, and it will this will save you so much time if you normalize this as a team. On call is like a doctor with a pager. So let's say, David, I know that I have two or three culture things that might come up in the next meeting I'm sitting in, and I might need your expertise, but I'm not sure. I put you on call, you sit at your desk, and you have a whole hour or 45 minutes during which you can move ahead other stuff. You can't be on a phone call because it's too hard to interrupt, but you can check, you can process email, you can write reports, you can do whatever you need to do. And if I need you for five minutes of your time, I ping you and I say, can you zoom on in here for two seconds, as opposed to taking 45 minutes of your time. Think of it like a doctor with a pager. They're not at the hospital, but they're available. And this is absolutely a game changer when teams adopt this together. Oh, love this so much. So I encourage you, you might want to just, you know, I'm going to use old language, rewind, take it back about two or three minutes and replay those techniques that Julia just shared. So many valuable techniques. The, and the, the, my favorite in that, that I had not heard before, which has me thinking my wheel spinning is the, the opt-in, opt-out approach uh, and really creating some good culture around that. I can see where that'd be hugely valuable. It's that the cultural piece that you would be so good at adding is really critical though, because if the stated rule is you can opt out, but the truth living in the walls is that you'll pay a price for opting out, then no one will ever opt out. It has to be a place where leaders say, you opted out, you just 
gave me back an hour of my valuable employee doing the right thing. Hooray. Thank you for doing that. As opposed to, you know, I'm going to scoff and be insulted that you're not sitting in my meeting, That it's really delicate work and very important to add. Absolutely. And that's a leader's work for any of those kinds of things that you're doing. You know, the other thing that you're, you're calling to mind for me was uh, when you mentioned, Hey, leader, you don't have to be at the meeting. That may not be necessary. Today, there was a meeting some of our team had, and neither Karen nor I were a part of that meeting. They were productive, asked us a follow-up question. You know, you're absolutely right. And to get our ego out of the way of that. It's very difficult. There's a story in the book that makes me smile every time I think about it, about this leader. He's a very senior executive in a huge firm. I mean, he's a big shot by any definition. And the day that I met him for the first time, he sat in this series of meetings that would make you laugh because one of his teams was trying to sell a project. So they had to sell it and then they sold it up and then they sold it up and then they sold it up. And it's basically the same pitch, the same deck, the same script. And he sat in every one of these uh, uh, elevating meetings to the point where by the fourth meeting, he could practically recite the pitch. And he was just a figurehead. He could have been that, that cardboard poster that they bring in and just put a picture of him there. But, that, but the whole story is not as interesting as the psychological examination of why. Why would a seasoned authoritative person like an elephant tied to that rope when they tie the baby elephant and then it doesn't know that it can escape? Why would he be sitting there? And that's because these uh, acts of refusal are so counterculture that nobody even thinks about doing them, much less has the confidence to do so. And in order to even get there, you probably need to introduce some of that reflection time you mentioned earlier or the reduction uh, re- reduction time to think about those things right. of what should I be not doing in that. And if we're just on autopilot because busy is good and we that's what we do, it never gets examined. Now, I'll tell you what I'm hoping. I'm, I'm hoping that we've finally hit some kind of bottom in the pandemic to this behavior. And I don't know if all your listeners would be familiar with the term bottom, but it's an AA term, Alcoholics Anonymous term, that when an alcoholic gets in enough pain or an addict that they would hit their bottom, meaning some catalyst for finally accepting change and growth. If they have a recidivist alcoholic who never gets better and decade after decade keeps going back, they say they have a bottom with a trap door. And that means it just keep the no matter what amount of pain. And I have for very a very long time felt like corporate America has a bottom with a trap door about so many aspects of pain that people live with, so many places where work is the hardest part of people's lives. And the meeting calendar is a big one. Maybe the pandemic has finally given us a sense of the ridiculousness of it. And maybe it's time now that we can change it. Oh, I sure hope so, Juliet. And, you know, when you're talking about that bottom with the trap door and some of our dysfunctions, our human dysfunctions that we fall into, and in this arena, one of the things that I really appreciate, it was one of I was hoping to encounter, and then as I'm reading, there it is. And you talk about, and I'm using, paraphrasing your language, but there were four thieves Mm. that you refer to. And I think that these are so important because I know for myself, I mean, gosh, you know, it hit me in the in the face a couple of times as I'm reading the tough love part, as I'm reading and realizing where I get into trouble in this arena is because there are positive things, positive aspects of my of own course. psychology, motivation, call it what you will, that can be positive, but they've got a shadow side. 
And so these four thieves that you talk about, I think are so vital. And I'd like to, to have you explore them with us a little bit and then talk about the remedies. Sure. Sure. So the thieves came out of research. We researched busyness and we looked at all, all the reasons. The background of this is I spent 10 years in the field creating this content. And then we've been spending ten, about 10 years as a company implementing it in large and small organizations. And so in that research process, we found out that there were about 28, 29 different reasons that people get too busy. Some of them were seasonality, leadership behavior, economy, all sorts of forces. But if you boil them down, they came down to about four main drivers. And the irony when we really isolated them was that every single one of them was an asset that had run amok. It was a positive thing that you wouldn't want to live without, but out of size. So that's the thieves of time. And they are drive, excellence, information, and activity. Now in an employee You'd want a driven, excellent, active, informed employee in a company. You'd want to be all those things. And as a leader, I want to be, you know, right. driven. We all want to be those things. I want information. I, you know, I want to be active. Yeah. And then what happens So we go to sleep? It's like the, you remember the Tribble movie where they get near water? Wasn't it when they get near water and then oh, they gremlins, turn into the gremlins. evil? Gremlins, gremlins. Yes. I've never thought of the thieves that way, but they morph into something else. So drive becomes overdrive and excellence becomes perfectionism and information becomes information overload and activity just becomes frenzy. And this is the moment then where they've turned from friend to foe. And so they, we have to learn to ride this line. There is a moment right before they overgrow where they're just plain beautiful. And we have to kind of learn to balance, enjoying their assets and not overgrowing. So each of us will have a different thief or thieves that we lean to. Mine is excellence perfectionism. Uh, I am unabashedly a person who's known for sending back a business card four times because the paper isn't correct and I'm proud to do it. But there are times when sharpening your pencils to a weapon point or pumping gas to the perfect number becomes a habit that we then take into unnecessary parts of work and then becomes a problem. And every one of the thieves has a corollary where it begins to rob us when it started by serving us. So let's talk about how we can address those when whichever thieves, whatever combination we tend to fall prey to and can get overactive. What are some practical things that we can do to address them? You, you have some great suggestions for us in this arena. The objectivity is the beginning. To be able to say, oh, that's a thief of drive. I just noticed myself planning nine projects in a single month for my team. Ding, 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 ding. Awareness and languaging. I can now see it objectively. To notice yourself uh, in a document with a bullet point that is not doing what you want it to do and you're 20 minutes in when a dash could have been just fine, this is when you, oh, that's a thief of excellence. I can see them. Okay, now that's I scary, can... Juliet. How were you in my <laughs> office earlier today or what? Yes. This is, it's autocorrect fighting you like a point guard and you're just in there, in there, in there, in there. We have to learn to release by seeing the thief. Once you spot it, you have object, instant objectivity. If you can spot something and use language about it, you have instant objectivity, which means it no longer has control over you the same way. So once we've done this for a little while, now we want to use the simplification questions, which is the core tool that threads throughout the book to disarm these thieves. The questions are a little long to go through in a non-slide format where we can't read along. So let's just pick one to understand how it works. And I'll use the one that I think is 
one of the subtlest of the four questions. It's the one that maps to the thief of information. So the, con the question that disarms the thief of information is, what do I truly need to know? And I, I love that it's the only italicized word in all of the powerful questions that truly is so subtle and so important. What do I truly need to know? Not what do I need to know because dashboards and scoreboards and spreadsheets and data are recreational and not because I feel like I get points in corporate heaven for stacking up more content, but what do I actually tactically functionally need to know to make business better? And that's a beautiful filtering question. Uh, in the book, we go through one question that maps to each of the thieves, but I think perhaps just starting with that one is the right size for today. It is a beautiful question. I would, uh, it's, it's one that has served me well when I remember to implement it. And when I don't, I have this anxiety that creeps up because mm -hmm. my reading list of what, whether it's articles <laughs> or books or I have literally had books tackle me where the stack of books gets so big, <laughs> the unread stack gets so big and then it topples over. Literally assaults you. I love yeah. that. Yes. And it's partly because I need to answer that question more effectively. And, you know, there's only at some point the amount of additional information you're getting is not actually helpful or relevant. To, to what you're needing to do. And information is a, is a disastrous white space thrill, uh, filler. If you remember in the book, there are these graphics that sort of look like piano keys where the activities of our days are all sandwiched together. And what we want to do is open them up with little spaces in between, but things that we do fill those spaces. And one of the most subtle and pernicious ones is podcasts. I'm sorry to say, even though we are on a podcast or audiobooks. Or uh, transcribe the, I can't remember what you call it when you make an article into an audio file where they're mm. doing that now. Every single open second can be brushing your teeth, can be unpacking from a trip, can be chopping carrots. All we need is a pair of AirPods and an internet connection, and we can fill the time with more and more and more information. Now, obviously, I'm a lover of podcasts and on one right now, but there are also moments to chop carrots while listening to nothing. Absolutely. And there are moments to stare out a window and wait for an idea to fully form inside your mind before talking. And, and these are the kind of restorative moments that we're heading for. Mm, so powerful. You reminded me with that last comment uh, when uh, we were writing Courageous Cultures, I was talking with um, Jason Freed, the he was oh, a base camp, co-founder co of base camp. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and we were talking about, you know, having teams of people that come up with solution like your security guard right who are coming up with innovations and solutions and uh seeing problems and you know and all of all of that and he said you know the any leader who's frustrated at their people for not doing more of that kind of thinking first thing you got to be looking at is their schedule mm -hmm. because if we're just keeping people packed there is no time for that and it, it prompted me to think about myself in, in my leadership career and, and leaders that I work with, if you encounter a team member who's staring out the window. Mm. Now, I know maybe in our remote environment, there's not as many window staring opportunities, but if you were to encounter an employee team member and they're staring out the window, what's your response? That's, that's that I, I talk about that all the time. They, would you, tweet a picture? Would you set, call a paramedic? We have no idea what to do with somebody who's thinking anymore, but we used to. And this is a, a dating comment, but there was a time when if you saw your boss thinking, 
you would back out slowly like you saw a rattlesnake because you knew that was the golden hour where they were concocting the future of a product or the future of a company. There was this beautiful respect for the gold in them hills of the thinking time. We just, we don't have that anymore. In fact, we have the opposite, which is we have a a sense of directive to purposefully interrupt. What are you working on? What are you working on? What are you doing? What are you working on? What are you on? What are you on? Blah, blah, blah. Until somebody is frightened to take, we say that thinkers have to hide around the corner like smokers because it's it's scary to think in public in corporate America. I, I laughed when I saw that because uh, when I heard that uh, the thinkers have to hide around the corner like smokers because I have been that person. <laughs> yep. Uh, the, the Like I need to think. So I remember- when I was in an office environment, I was an executive for crying out loud, but I position, I had a chair. I would position myself where nobody could see through the window right. and I would turn the lights out. And I literally was hiding to do exactly that because I had, I'm doing the guiltful thing of putting my brain to work, to improve my output. What a horrible, <laughs> what, what a horrible about, thing. Right? And the reminder going back to where, where we started that, that if we will do that, that, like to get rid of the guilt and to reframe, this is constructive. This is investing mm. in the future of, if you're a frontline leader, you're investing in the, the future of your team and the business. And to, to you'll find those ways where you're going to have the improvements and the, the things that go to the bottom line and, and achieve the results you're accountable for. And you'll do that more effectively than your peers who aren't. If and there's, you can frame it that way. there's a section in the, the, the 10th chapter of the book is really about how do you make this come to life in real life in companies. And there's a section called Dear Leader, where I, I make my most heartful attempt to, to have leaders do the work that only leaders can do. The modeling, the permission giving, the setting of the tone, the vulnerably admitting when they are culpable and they're the ones sending emails on Sunday night. This is all such important leadership work. But right now there's one piece that I think I'd like to focus your leaders on, and that is in the return to the office. We've been we've been obsessing about the future of work for a very long time. And here it is. This is the moment where we get to redesign everything. And we are currently too focused on where. If you interrupt any leader in a meeting room right now, they're talking about where people sit, where we sell real estate, where we keep real estate, where managers, blah, 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 where. And absent and dangerously not present is the how of this return to work. All the things, darling leader, listener, that have bothered you about your own company for years or decades, this is it. This is the moment where all the car parts are out on the driveway. We can clean them, we can examine them, we can replace the broken ones. So if you're not having conversations right now about how you want work to be, you're missing potentially a once in a career opportunity. Absolutely. You know, we were, I know that, you know, Dove Barron and we were talking yeah. with him this morning and uh, just earlier today and we're talking about the, the power that freedom and the freedom of choice are playing for people and stickiness and loyalty and, and all that sort of thing. And you know, and, and to your point, so many executives right now or, or leaders across the board, we're, they're focused on the one element of choice about where, mm -hmm. and that's only one aspect of choice. The how that you're talking about, there is how that ought to be defined because this is the culture. This is how people like us do. This is, this is what we do. But then there are elements of how that are also available and should be available for choice. Mm -hmm. And 
for people to construct that. And then there's the when. There's so many different choices available in all of this that as a leader, if we can be cognizant of that, create opportunities to create this culture of the white space that you're talking about. I think so too. And to think a layer down. So for instance, let's say we say flex time is good. Let's begin with the current belief, flex time is good. I agree, flex time is good. I work a flex time schedule. But there's also a case to examine how is flex time really showing up? And I'll give you an example of what I see. What I see in a lot of places, here's how flex time really looks. You work from seven to three, because that's the flex time slot that you allotted yourself. Then from three to six, you're supposed to be off and with your kids, but you kind of sort of can feel everybody else working. And so you end up checking and you end up looking a little bit because you could feel those whispers of others working from that three to six slot. And then you take a break and you eat dinner. And then from eight to 10, you kind of do a weird extra guilty shift just because you're a flex time worker. And that's not how it's intended to be. And so, yes, flex time is good. It's an important part of our new wear. Now let's get really thoughtful. Let's reflect and have some time to say, what does it look like in real life for people? Because I sometimes have an advocate for synchronized rest and synchronized work over flex time. Because if we're working what I call Dolly Parton hours, we're all doing nine to five, there is a very restful feeling to know that we're all on and all off at the same time. And so these are conversations that have to be happening in real time as, an, as, a, as one example of this redesign. Beautiful. I have nothing to add to that except to say, yes, please be having those conversations. And if they're not, you're a leader, start asking the questions and say, can we talk right. about this? And here are right. some of the opportunities. So Juliet, as we're running out of time. There's so much more here. I'm going to encourage everybody, please get a minute to think. Thank you. Uh, it's it's coming out the beginning of August 2021 here, and it's so valuable. One of the last elements I'd like to draw out here is, and I know people are probably having this question because as I was reading through the book, I was having this question. Okay, yeah, I could take responsibility for myself. I can do this. Absolutely. Oh, but what do I do when I have that you know, someone else's urgency that I'm dealing with. Uh, mm. And so far, and you have, I mean, and you literally give us scripts to use in different, and these are binary yes, no types of situations, but I'm, I'm wondering if you might be willing to share with us just a few of the situations that we might encounter and some of the scripts that we might use in order to help manage ourselves in those situations. Yeah, there's so much about, there's so much about this that is relational that if we if we were alone we could make smarter choices but my client needs me and my boss needs me and my colleague needs me and it's all operating in you're familiar with this term now from the book in this sense of hallucinated urgency where everything feels like it's a fire drill emergency on fire er all the time and that's a very very difficult environment in which to be lucid so here are a couple of phrases that can tamp that down May I take 24 hours and get back to you? One of the simplest and most important phrases in the history of business. Just step away from the person, step away from that interpersonal connection and go somewhere where your mind can think. The very simple boundary setting phrase of it won't work for me too, or it doesn't work for me that, or it's not going to work that is such a beautiful entree to your no you have to be very cautious about tone. You can sound a little firm in your tone. 
if you have a children at home who don't know how to leave you alone so you can have some restorative peace in the evenings or the weekends, Honey, Take the No is one of my favorites. <laughs> Ta- take the No. That's on the 47th time of asking, can they have ice cream on a day where it's not an ice cream day? And, and so we practice using these simple phrases. There are, I think there are 12 or 15 of them in the book. And they, they give you a handhold to understand that you can have authority, but that rehearsing that authoritative stance makes it easier. That once you know the language that's going to come out of your mouth, it doesn't have to be so scary to improvise through every boundary setting moment. Mm, powerful. Well, I encourage you take a look at these and you're, you're going to get some value. I mean, there's so much value in a minute to think, reclaim creativity, conquer busyness and do your best work. Julia, where can we find, where can listeners connect with you? Imagine we can find the book anywhere, but you can. tell us where to connect. So the, the connection point is julietfunt.com, but we've also prepared something there for you that you can access as a tool, regardless of whether you do or do not buy the book. Of course, I hope you do, but there's a quiz there called the busyness test. And this is a, we're asking, how can we get these conversations started? Go to julietfunt.com take the busyness test, and then have every member of your team or department take the test. It will assess the places in your day-to-day habits that are causing you the most problematic drains on your time and efficiency. And then you can discuss your results together, which will lead you toward new habits and the new behaviors that we've been talking about. All right. So get over there, julietfunt.com and take your busyness quiz and I mean, she was very gracious. I hope you get the book. I'm telling you, get this book and, and read it and use it. It's every Listen to him. Got, Do what he says. <laughs> every chapter's got great breakouts for you, summary. And like I said, it's so practical. You know, as, as we're talking here and you're talking about the, the phrases we can use around the no, you used a term which is in the book and that hallucinated urgency. Mm. And it's one of those that I, I got to be honest with you, I, I kind of resent. I don't hallucinate anything, right? And... Or if I was to butt, um, butt myself here. Yes. Just this week, I was having a conversation with Karen, and she, uh, business partner, life partner, and co-author, and everything. And uh, we were talking about schedule and getting some things done. And and I said, well, I don't have time to do that because I need to do this. And she said, well, why are you prioritizing that? And I said, because you said it had to be done tomorrow. She said, oh, I. No, I didn't mean to say that. It was hallucinant. It was hallucinated. Literally hallucinated. <laughs> Literally hallucinated urgency on my now. Was it urgent? Sure, but she speaks in urgent terms. It's her personality. It was fine for next week, but I didn't ask the question. And that's my responsibility. And those are the scripts and the power of the words that you're giving us here. It's so strong. You can even do that. I'll give you a, I, I can't stop giving little do this, try this tips, but on the way out, we'll say this. Put it in the subject line of your next email. Not needed till Wednesday. Can wait till tomorrow. No time frame. These are beautiful areas where you can release another person from hallucinated urgency and so, so easy to add. Fantastic. All right. Well, we're going to help our people to conquer their hallucinated urgency. We're certainly going to work on conquering ours, and we're going to create more than one minute to think. Juliet, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you leadership without losing your soul. This is so valuable. I really appreciate your time and your wisdom. Great to be with you. All right. So let's create those minutes to think, help your team, create that white space, create it for yourself. And you're on the way to being the leader you'd want your boss to be.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.